It's the Progress Pod, a production of the Franklin County Coalition for Progress. I'm Pete Mazzoni with Jeremy Kate. The Franklin County Coalition for Progress is partnering with the Coyle Free Library in Chambersburg during Women's History Month and coordinating a program on the topic of gender equality. The coalition is partnering with Dr. Amy Deal, an administrator at Shippensburg University who has conducted qualitative research on the gender-based barriers that women in leadership positions face in the workplace. Dr. Deal will present on March 18th and 25th with an introduction to gender barriers women face in the workplace and strategies to address those barriers. On today's show, we're going to speak with Dr. Deal about her research on this topic, Making the Invisible Visible, a cross-sector analysis of gender-based leadership barriers. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about this topic as we were just discussing before we went uh, live. Um, Not everyone believes that this is truly an issue. Mm -hmm. So I guess my first question is starting out, what got you interested in this area of study? Well, thank you for asking that question. So I actually work at, I work at a university and I um, have been at that university for quite a long time. I was a computer science major when I was in college and I was hired shortly thereafter into an entry level IT position. So working in uh, IT, you you may be aware that IT is a male dominated field. And um, for many years um, working in that field, I felt that I did well and I was, and I certainly was well respected. amongst my uh, peers, and I actually moved up uh, within, within the organization. Um, but the more I moved up, the more I started to run into barriers that, or things, I wouldn't even have called them barriers at that point, that I, I didn't really understand what was going on. And uh, I'll give you an example. Um, I had spent many years working, watching the male leaders around me and watching how they led uh, the, team, the team members. And so I would watch them, and I, one, uh, things sticks out really prevalent in my mind. I would watch my former male boss. I would watch him in a meeting, uh, meetings, uh, in which we didn't have consensus about the topic at hand, and mm-hmm. so we would discuss the the issue for the length of the meeting, and and the group just wouldn't have consensus. At the end of the meeting, he would say, "Okay, I'm going to making a decision, and we're going to go in this direction," and the team respected him and his decision. Well, fast forward, whenever I became responsible for leading the team, I tried to lead in exactly the same way. And what I found was that I had lost points with my staff because I had been authoritative mm-hmm. um, and had not ensured that everybody was on the same page with the decision. So whereas my boss had gained points and earned respect by communicating in an authoritative manner, I had lost points. And so that's when I started to think, like, started to question what's, what's going on here. Uh, about the same time, I entered a PhD program um, in leadership and administration, and I used that program as an opportunity um, to really delve deep into this subject. And I started right away in that program. Anytime we'd have an assignment, I chose the topic of gender barriers for women in leadership. Mm-hmm. And I started my research at that time. It took three years of study, and then I started my dissertation. And for my dissertation, I looked at women leaders in higher education and how they made meaning of adversity. And I asked them questions that were specific to personal adversity and professional adversity. And I was able to take that data and look at what, what barriers, because I'd ask questions, like what barriers are they really running into you know, during their So now we're their getting into the study itself. Yeah, yeah. Before we do that, I want to talk about the title, mm-hmm. Making the Invisible Visible. Um, I feel like you're making a, a point there regarding, and your study mentions how these type of things don't happen blatantly anymore. Right, that's right. And so the title speaks to that right, directly. Right. So a lot of the overt discrimination has already been legislated 
again. So in, instead of the, the discrimination being overt, what we found is it has really just gone underground and it's become subtle, unconscious, and invisible if you don't have names for it, if you don't know what you're looking for. Right. Um, and I do want to emphasize that a lot of this behavior, it is very unconscious to the person that is um, ex like say exhibiting it. Um, it's a result of the environments which we were raised in, which, which society has been, which our society is, mm -hmm. um, in that our organizations have been formed by men for their needs. Um, and what has happened is that organizations, they appear to, well, they have practices that appear to be neutral. They're actually um, discriminatory towards women or people who don't have lives that are exactly like men's. Right. And particularly, there's this assumption that uh, there's this ideal worker assumption, which is that um, the ideal worker can work eight hours, uh, at least eight hours, extra hours as needed, continuously away from home, 40 hours a week, again, extra hours as needed, because they've got somebody at home, i.e. a wife, taking care of their personal needs, their child, children, right. and, and any other thing that would uh, potentially impact on their time. Okay, let's, I want to kind of work through some of the ideas you have here. Increased understanding and awareness of unconscious and gender-based bias. So I, I guess what you're trying to approach there is open people's eyes to what this actually is and how it manifests. So if you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So like I said, a, a lot of this behavior is, is just unconscious, um, to, again, on the, on the part of the individuals who would have the bias. And it's not, it's not exclusively men that exhibit the bias, women too, because we've all grown up in the same, the same culture, right? Um, so often what we see happening is that men and women working in organizations, they uphold the sexist, sexism that's going on in the organization. But a lot of it, again, it's not blatant. It's not necessarily blatant, although some things still are. Um, but it's therefore, um, Again, invisible, it's just a, the default, the standard, the way that organizations uh, operate. Right, so women, and the women you've spoken to, uh, let's address, we'll come back to that. I want to address yeah. kind of the parameters of the study. Sure. Can you tell us what those were, how many women you interviewed, what professions? Yeah, yeah, so um, for my research, uh, for my dissertation research, I interviewed um, 26 women leaders in higher education. That was presidents, vice presidents, provosts. Um, from there, so I had this dissertation, wrote the dissertation, got the PhD. From there, a year later, I went to a, a research colloquium, and I met um, my current research partner. Her name is Leanne Dubinsky, and she had done a very similar study on women leaders in faith-based nonprofit organizations, mm. and that was her dissertation research. And so we met at this colloquium. We started talking, and you know, the thing that we started to realize was that when we talked about the barriers that her women were facing versus the barriers that my women were facing, and that it all sounded very similar. And so all of a sudden, it wasn't right. just like higher ed. It wasn't just this religious context, it was maybe these barriers are just a, a, a inherent in being a woman in the workplace and mm -hmm. not contingent on a specific organization type. Right. If you think about it, higher education is very, tends to be thought of and is very liberal, much more liberal, progressive. Religion's very conservative. So we were very surprised um, to find that the, the barriers and the barriers that we list in this study, the 26, they all appeared in both sets of the data. Yeah, that's interesting. You went to two vastly different institutions, but got kind of the same mm -hmm. result. And I'll, and I'll say, when I finished my dissertation research, I had about 14, 14 of these. Okay. When we pulled her study in, we pulled in uh, 12 more. And there were things that were stuck out more in the respective mm -hmm. studies. But what we had done, or what we did was we took, um, you know, we had found all of my barriers in her data. We found new ones in her data, and then we took all those barriers back and looked at my data, and we found them. Mm -hmm. It was really, really in interesting to me because um, 
I don't know if you know anything about the qualitative uh, research process, but I had conducted these hour-long interviews with 26 women executives, and I had recorded them. I must have listened to each interview five or six times, and I could, like, quote them verbatim. But just because I knew them, like, knew them by heart, I still wasn't seeing what was underlying what was going on until mm -hmm. I had some names and some labels and some things that I was looking for. Okay. Um, and so that's how we were able to surface uh, the 26 that we uh, talked about in our that we talked about in our study. Okay, so now let's get back into that unconscious uh, and gender-based bias. Now, mm -hmm. how, how give us an example of how this manifests and maybe how we can identify it. Well, that's that's a good question. So the first thing I would say is that to identify it is that you really have to like dig in and understand how it manifests. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll give you a, I'll give you an example. Of one of the barriers that we talk about in our study it's it's labeled control of women's voices. And what that is is restrictions on how and when women contribute to the conversation. Um, so the, one of the, I'm going to read you one of the quotes from the study. Um, one of the mission executives said, I want it to be more of a conversation, but, to the, but the men have commented more than once that it feels like I'm interrupting them, and I should wait until they're finished and then I can talk. We see this. We th see Sounds this. like a very polite individual. Yes, right. <laughs> but we see this, maybe not like that person was very direct, and we don't necessarily see it as directly mm -hmm. in most contexts, but you see it a lot in just meetings that happen, and yeah. women will try to speak and they get interrupted, or they get, there are like new terms that have been, that have been kind of brought into our lexicon, like uh, mansplaining and appropriating. Like a woman what, was, what was that bro, bro appropriating. Bro, that's so new to me. that's new to you. Good. So <laughs> what, what that means is that it's a case where a woman in a meeting has an idea. A few minutes later, oh, she says the idea, awkward. right? A few minutes later, uh, a man in the meeting will basically restate what the woman had said and get the credit for, for that idea. That's, that is horrible. Yeah. But we see that happening quite frequently. And in fact, we had, we had women um, also tell us that what they had learned they needed to do to work around that was they would talk to the men in advance of the meetings, give them their ideas so that whenever they met, actually in the formal meeting situation, the ideas would be brought up and listened to. The women knew that if they just brought them up on their own, they may not get the, the same consideration. Okay. Well, yeah. that's a very, you know, that's identifiable. Right. I mean, if you're paying attention. If you're paying attention, that's right. And that goes, to, I guess, to a whole other point is how to get men aware of being in that attention span or being in that space and under, watching the dynamic right. and saying, all right, you just stole her idea. Right. Right. Well, that's the, that's the thing. It's calling it out in a polite way, you know, saying, hey, you know, I think Susie just said that same thing. Thank you for bringing, you know, thank you for bringing it up. And Susie, what else do you have to say about this idea? You mm -hmm. know, put, shifting mm -hmm. the focus back. Um, working in my, own, in my own teams at the university that I work, I have um, had discussions about setting meetings, um, setting up meetings so that they're, we just make a norm that we don't allow interruptions. So That's a great idea. Right. And so if an interruption happens, because it can happen, it sure, still can happen. Right, right. But... The facilitator then is responsible for saying, no, wait, you know, Jane didn't finish her thought, or Mark or Steve, it, you know, it goes both ways, right? But it just tends to be the, it's happening more so to the women, right? Mm -hmm. So-and-so didn't finish their thought, let's let them finish, and then we'll come to, mm -hmm. you know, you. I think, and tell me what you think about this, a big component of this, let's say at that meeting, mm -hmm. is the responsibility of the other men in the room mm -hmm. to acknowledge what's going on right in front of them. Um, as I've spoken to women, the stories I've heard, there's always been one bad actor, one man mm -hmm. bad actor, but there have been a number of other men in the same situation who really didn't rise to the occasion. That's right. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a, a, you know, there's a culpability that everyone right. in the space has to kind of own. Right, right. And I would say, too, it's like part of what I'm trying to do with this research and getting, is getting awareness around it and 
because if, if you don't know what you're looking for, the men and the women, then, you, then how can you help, right? If you don't realize that this is systematically happening to the women in your organization, how can you know to help? So, but I think you're right in that we all have that kind of that bystander, that bystander intervention, you know, men and women, we all have that, um, that imperative on us to help. All right, let's get into, uh, let's start, I guess, unless you have a different place you want to start, yeah. with the macro barriers mm-hmm. you describe in your paper, if you want to discuss those. Yeah, so the macro barriers. So we lay out the barriers at, at three levels, macro, meso, and individual. Macro and meso are terms from sociology. Um, macro really means societal barriers. So these are barriers which they operate in society, and they prevent women um, as a whole from advancing and succeeding in leadership. They make it challenging for women leaders to contribute uh, their leadership expertise and for both men and women to take leaders seriously. Um, so I talked about one, that was that control of women's voices. That doesn't just happen in like the workplace. It happens more broadly out in, sure. in society, right? Uh, another one is that we surfaced was cultural constraints on women's choices. So these are societal constraints on women's educational and career choices. You know, when my mother went to school in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, she had two, like a, a couple of choices for what she could major in. Teacher, nurse. Yes, exactly. Right. So she chose teaching. She taught for one year, didn't like it, and left the workforce um, at that time. She later went back and had a very long career, but, but she didn't have another choice, right? Um, and we think, well, that was in the late 60s, early 70s. Certainly much has changed. Women can, they can, you know, major in anything they want, which right. conceptually is true. But when we look at certain fields, in particular STEM fields, sci- uh, science, uh, technology, engineering, and mathematics, what we find is those fields, are, they're, they're dominated by, um, by men. Well, I, and I have to ask the question of why you left your own field out of the study, because uh, actually my... I have a family member who is a scientist. She's a female scientist, mm-hmm. and she'll tell you in no uncertain terms, it's bad. Mm-hmm. And you know, there it's it's out in the open. Mm-hmm. And so, is there any reason you didn't look at the the STEM fields? Or? Well, I will say that I did talk to in the in the original study. I did talk to um, some women uh, CIOs, chief information okay. officers. So, I was try- what I was trying to do with the study was make it was. It was more about like higher education, okay. and that was just ha- happened to be the group that I looked at. I mean, I can tell you in our subsequent work, we have we're moving on, you sure. know, beyond uh, these two fields to look at other fields. It's certainly, like you said, it's male dominated, and it's and some cultures are are just not They're friendly at all. Friendly at all, right? Yeah. To women, um, um, but when you're doing a research study, you have to narrow the scope, sure. and so you, you know, I had happened to uh, you know settle on uh, higher education. So in discussing cultural constraints on women's choices, mm-hmm. I notice in here the, the effect of societal expectations. Mm-hmm. Now, that could manifest in many ways. I guess the first one that comes to mind is having children. Sure. And so, you know, women in the workplace, you know, they kind of have to negotiate that. Does your study address that? Well, what I would say is that, is that we certainly had lots of comments from women who were mothers. And, mm-hmm. you know, it gets down to, I'll skip ahead to... The individual barriers, and in the individual barriers, one of them is called work-life conflict. We we played around with our labels, but originally it had been called work-family conflict. Mm-hmm. But we wanted to be a little bit more more broad. Um, the thing about the the individual level barriers is that although they affect women on an individual level, they actually are the outcome of the societal constraints. So um, with the work-family conflict or work-life conflict, you know what we did found we found 
people, moms who, people who had that role of mother, you know, telling, explaining to us what the um, implications were of society, assuming that it was their, all their responsibility right. to find solutions. To give you one example, just in culture, the term working mother, that's a very common term. How often have you heard the term working father? I think just now for the first time. Yeah, yeah, right. It's like not a thing because it's expected that the, like, like, a, like. Right, the old model. Yeah, the old model is that if you're a father who's working, you've got that wife at home, you know, you know blah, 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 to help take care of the child and your personal needs. Um, you know, United, you know, the United States is the one of the only, maybe the only, like, developed country that doesn't have a policy for paid family leave. Right. Right. And so we really do put the onus on individual parents to um, d- to solve their own challenges right. rather than mm-hmm. helping them. Um, when I say that term paid family leave, I don't mean paid maternity leave. Paid family leave gets out a couple things. One, of course, the maternity leave, but also what about leave for the fathers to stay yeah. home, right? Yeah. And help with the you know raising of the, the infant, right, mm-hmm. the newborn. Um, at the same time with the mother or, you know, at a, at a different time. And what about also people that have other caretaking responsibilities, um, like people that have take care of their elderly parents, for example? There's just no space for any of that within the, within the, the United States uh, workforce. Or what, I shouldn't say there's no space. Some organizations certainly do, more progressive organizations make space, but within the, you know, society, there's nothing that imperative. And that, I think the concept of paid family leave, I, I've never heard anyone who worked for anyone where that was available. Right, right, that's true. And so. there's, there's even organizations um, that don't even ha- have make the maternity leave you know, available. Mm-hmm. I mean, we do have the, um, the FMLA leave where, you know, that the uh, policy which states that, you know, if you've got this um, type of leave to take, you know, where you need to take care of, you know, family and newborn or whatever, you can take time off to do that. I mean, you can retain your job, but there's nothing that compels organizations to pay for that leave. Which makes which it useless. Makes it, yeah, which makes it very, yeah. very challenging. Right, yeah. right. Yep. Moving on, uh, one of the bigger ones to talk about mm-hmm. is gender stereotypes. Oh, that's a huge one. Um, yeah, that's, there's a lot of... And there's also, that, that's, that goes also, I'll, I'll put two together, gender stereotypes and leadership perceptions. The stereotypes, first of all, the stereotypes are relatively fixed and oversimplified generalizations about women. And the example that I used in the study was... Um, there was a, this was a female president of, an or, of a university, and she was younger, younger meaning that she was in her 40s okay. when she was a president. Um, and this was her quote. She says, when I got pregnant, one of the board members said to me, well, I guess now you'll finally stay home and take care of the kids, stop working. Because she had had one other, chi- like, one other child already, right? Right, right. Um, and then that flips over to leadership perceptions when we, you know, um, I used to use this um, graph, the graphic, it was a Time magazine cover, when I would present I would use it, and this was back when uh, Obama was running against Hillary, like Hillary Clinton, like eight years ago, and it was a split screen, it was half Obama's face and half Hillary Clinton's face, and, you, and I would show that in my trainings, and I would say, which side of this would you associate with, you know, with a leader, um, just to make people aware that, like, when we think of a leader, who do we think of? Uh, a man generally it just generally associates with masculinity in people's minds right i mean i think it's aggressiveness gr- forcefulness yes. all those attributes right. sure i mean i think one of the things i think is really really great is we're seeing all the, we're seeing several more than just one or two um, female candidates for the united states presidency we're actually in the house of representatives now it's 23 percent uh female uh the highest number it's ever been right which is great yeah. great i want to get us to 50 50 
you know, I mean, I want us to be at 50-50. Be representative you know? of the yeah, society as exactly, a whole. Exactly, exactly. Um, when we're representative of society, then we can, you know, when you look at images of who, who is a leader, who, you know, who are in these positions, um, it can be someone who is what I would say that society would say is a young woman. You think of Alexandria, uh, Alexandra. Yeah, Cortez. Cortez, right? She's 29. We just call her AOC. AOC, that's good. That's what I call her too. <laughs> you know, she's a 29-year-old woman, and here she is, basically standing up to the men oh, and, she's saying, a force of and saying, "I'm not going to take this, yeah. right?" And just, but just, just see, just to have her as an image in young women and young and girls and young women's minds to say, "If she can do it, I can do it too." I think it's huge. You know, and I was just going to ask the question because there, are, there are differences between us, yes. you know, the sexes, and you know, I'm more likely to get on my bicycle and try and go 60 miles an hour down a hill which is not the best idea right, right. maybe and you know maybe you're more likely I'm not trying to stereotype too broadly but to do something not dangerous well i'll tell you i'm not going to be going space. i'm not going to be going 60 miles an hour down that hill right my but bike. you see my yeah. point these differences right. exist and so i was just thinking you know how do you get women you know to the point where they can interact with an equal energy but without kind of betraying an essential self and i think aoc is a good example mm-hmm where she's forceful, she gets her point across, mm-hmm. but she doesn't seem to be betraying any essential nature. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And I would say, like, you know, if you have a man that would take a risk and a w- woman that wouldn't, well, that's where you, like, have the diversity of perspectives within a yeah. team. And so that you want to get all those ideas out there equally to be able to say, okay, this is why I would take the risk. This is why I wouldn't take the risk. Mm-hmm. And so that you can have that, that diverse uh, discussion with diverse members to bring all ideas to the table rather than just the men saying, I'm going 60 miles an hour down that hill. And I think that's the right approach. And all the other men saying, yep, I agree. And uh, pretty soon you're crashed into the tree alongside the road right, or something. Right. I don't know. <laughs> and there's, I noticed in the Equal Pay Act wording, and I'll come around to a point here, just stick with me, is that in the Equal Pay Act of 1963, they make a point in the law that says this discrimination prevents the maximum utilization of the available labor resources. What I read that to mean is you're not moving competency up. You're focused on, on sex rather than competency. And it seems to me that discriminating on this level is harmful to a corporation. Mm-hmm. If you have a competent mm-hmm. individual, you need to keep them moving. That's right. So isn't there some price to be paid? Well, ab- yeah, absolutely. For, you know, if you're devaluing the women in your organization by not paying them as much as the the man sitting beside them doing it basically the same job, then mm-hmm. yeah, like first of all, you're you're devaluing them. You're devaluing their skills. Um, what we've seen in our in our research um, subsequent to this, we've done survey research subsequent to this to this um, particular article. We've seen many instances where the women, because they're running into so many barriers, some of them being salary inequality, they'll just turn over and move on. So the organizations are losing. Right, competency. Right, right. Um, We found that they will go to another organization. They will sometimes, um, if they have the means, they will work for themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in in some instances, the women would say, I just retired early because I was, you know. Had enough. Yeah, had had enough. Sure. The other thing about salary inequality, which was interesting, was that we had some women tell us that they were explicitly told that the reason they weren't paid the same as their male counterpart was that the man had a family to support. That stuff just leaves me flat-footed when I hear it out loud, like someone said that out loud. Yes, exactly. And so you say some of it's gone underground, some of it is still out in the open. And, you know, 
Somebody asked me recently, you know, what's the, re what's the remedy for that? Is there something that these women could do? And I said, well, you know, if you're in a large organization and you have an HR department that takes these things seriously and your, and your leadership takes it seriously, then, yeah, maybe. But so many of these things happen in small organizations where there is no HR department. Uh -huh. um, and you're just, like, left on, like, if your boss says and the leadership supports that you're not going to be making more than this man beside you doing the same job, there's not a lot you can do other than live with it, leave, well, that's about it, you yeah. know, right? Um, yeah. And I don't think it's any help. I, I On the phone, I remember mentioning to you the Ledbetter uh, Fair Pay Act mm -hmm. that was brought. They were attempted to make into law. And her case was basically exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. She found out later in her yes. career, and Goodyear was going to do nothing about mm -hmm. it. And so she went to court, and ultimately she lost mm -hmm. on a technicality, mm -hmm. which would be discouraging yeah. to women who are sitting there in a small company. Mm -hmm. You know, who, no HR is not going to be responsive necessarily. So, all right, let's move on to one, another one, if I can, mm -hmm. unless you have more points no, to make there. Um, you, you were talking about the split screen of Hillary and mm -hmm. Obama, and mm -hmm. this goes to leadership perception. So mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that. Um, well, again, that's, that's what I mentioned earlier. Like, often when we think of a leader, we think of, we think, unfortunately, for better or worse, we think of a man. Um, I want to read you a quote from, this was, again, from a missions organization. This one of the executives said, it's, if you're there with your husband, it's a natural thing that he is seen as a leader. There's an indication of a natural leaning towards asking the man, and the men's are the ones who are naturally seen as leading the business sessions, leading a strategy session. So particularly in their context, and in many other contexts, again, maybe not as blatant as in the mission organizations, but what you see is that this perception that if there's somebody in charge in a room, it must be a man. That same, um, that same president that I talked about, who was the younger president again in her 40s, she told me another story, and that was how she says, frequently, whenever I walk into a room, and it's, or when I'm in a room, and um, somebody's being introduced to me who I've never met before, and she's in a room with other men in the room, right? She says, though, her staff will bring the person in and say, you know, say, hello, I'd like to introduce you to President so-and-so. And she said what happens, what happened to her time and time again is they would look at towards the oldest man in the room right. instead of assuming that it was that she was the actual you know president of her institution right and how how do women kind of go about that you've spoken to addressing these perceptions to you know create that i don't know what a better word but aura around them that says yeah i am the president of this institution and right. i'm a woman well so it's an interesting way that you're ask, asking that question because you know, later in the paper, I start talking about what are solutions, like what are some solutions to this problem, and I present a gender equity framework. And one of the steps in the framework that I contend has some success, but it's limited, is a is an approach called fix the women. And so it's basically exactly what you're saying. You're saying, okay, what can this woman do to make her present as, you know, somebody with more authority? And you know, it's not to say that certainly, you know, the dress that she wears, you know, the makeup, the hair, they, there's certain like sort of visual cues and things that, that can be done and the way that she, you know, speaks and all that. But wouldn't it be better if um, there just wasn't a difference between if I'm looking at you as a man and, you know, someone else who's a woman, if, it's, if somebody was like, who's the leader? I'm like, I don't know. Like, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be better? I, it was interesting on, um, on Twitter, well, just last night, somebody posted that they were at an economics conference presenting. And this woman was saying, you know, here I am in high heels, shoes that hurt my feet. And the male economist in front of me, who's speaking in front of me, is literally wearing jeans. And so this woman, this younger woman is like all dressed up, you know, to the nines. 
this male economist is wearing jeans. Now, I'm sure nobody told her, you must dress like this. But she knows if she doesn't dress like that, like she's not going to be taken, as a young woman, she's not going to be taken as seriously from the stage as this man that can just go up there in jeans and, you know, present have it, have it yeah, right, present ideas yeah. and have them be, re, you know, respected. Now that goes to another point you make, mm -hmm. scrutiny. Yes. Scrutiny is a, is a huge one. Um, and we see this a lot. Like, again, Hillary Clinton was the quintessential example that I used with scrutiny. Scrutiny was intense or hypercritical examination of women. Um, and so some of it, some, some scrutiny relates, a lot of scrutiny relates to their performance, but a lot of it relates to their dress, their appearance, their, you know, things that have nothing to do with, with their leadership um, capabilities. And again, with all the women who are running for, um, are for president and um, also AOC, we see this. We see Twitter posts about AOC and what, it, what she's wearing. What does that have to do with anything, right? With, right. Her, with her policies or with her work? Why is that type of thing being called out right. for the women? And it's not something that it seems to concern. Now, who does more of that scrutiny? I mean, is this kind of a thing where women can become their own enemy? Sure. Um, so I will say that, you know, when I talk about this, you know, first of all, <clears throat> I should have probably set this as a baseline. This, none of this is about blaming, blaming anyone. We are all raised in this type of society, and we all have these learned, ingrained biases. It's just making the, the, the goal is to make us aware uh, of the biases so that we can stop the work yeah. to fix it and interrupt them, right? That being said, we do see behaviors from women to police other women, some women. We do some women policing other women. And we do see there's a one of the other um, barriers that we talk about is something called Queen Bee effect, Queen Bee syndrome. And that's when um, women at the top fail to help other women or they actively prevent their promotion. And so the question is, why, do, why would women do this? Aren't we supposed to be like supporting each other? And yeah, in theory, and like that's what, that's what we want to get to. But the women who, who police other women and the women who, particularly the women at the top who fail to help other women or prevent their promotion, um, they're doing this to protect themselves, mm -hmm. right? It's a self-protection mechanism. They have grown up in the sexist environment and they've learned that in order to survive, they need to protect themselves. They may be be being told um, directly or even indirectly that there's only space for one person, one woman at the top, right. and then if she falls, then someone you know she can before someone else can be elevated, she has to fall, right? right. Um, so all of this comes from you know women being um, again raised and learning within the within the sexist environment, which we're attempting to change so that why can't there be space for more than one woman yeah, for many one. women, right? Um, so now is most of this the study the people the women you spoke to were at the kind of what we call the higher end mm -hmm. of the employment spectrum yeah yeah so in in those spaces i mean yeah there's a lot more competition mm -hmm. there's a lot more ego mm -hmm. a lot of those learned behaviors that you're talking right. about what about kind of at the mid-manager or managerial level? Some studies are showing women are really starting to represent in those areas sure and you know i think you know women um first of all <laughs> I have an, another interesting graphic which breaks out um, white males, black males, white women, and black women. And it breaks out their, um, the percentages of each at different levels in the corporate hierarchy. And for men, men's is the only one that increases as they go up from entry level to like CEO. Every other one just is like a, a drop-off, drop right? And what we've seen in our study too is that as women ascend higher and higher, what they find is that these barriers become stronger. Right. So that they may not see quite as, like they may not see any at the entry level, they may not, or few. Um, 
much uh, much fewer. They may not start to even notice it, you know, until they start moving up, and then they hit them, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, someone commented to me that if they said it's kind of like this bias is kind of like a, a drippy faucet. Like you don't, you may not notice it at first, but it, once you do, then it's something you can't yeah. not hear anymore or not see anymore, right? So yeah, what we have found is that, you know, as as women work their way up. Mm-hmm. That's when the the barriers uh, increase. Now that brings two questions to mind for me. Uh, out of your study, you talk about lack of support, lack of mentoring, mm-hmm. access to informal networks. Mm-hmm. Combine that kind of with the queen bee concept, and you know that woman in that leadership role should be providing that mentoring. You sure. Know, telling other sure. women, okay, here's mm-hmm. how you navigate this mm-hmm. space. Right. So, firstly, I would say that mentors should be. Um, we should be looking for mentors, and mentors should be both men and women, because there's things that the women can teach us, the women leaders can teach us, right. and there's other things that the male leaders can teach us. Um, again, it's all about getting awareness, awareness out there about the, the larger problem. I mean, if you're just trying, if you're in self-survival mode and you're trying to protect yourself, you know, of course you're going to do what you need to do, what you feel that you need to do to protect yourself. But the more that we can put awareness around this problem to the higher-level women, the upper-level men, um, the more I think that those things will start to change and the more that the men in particular the men there's like one of the barriers is called male gatekeeping and definition for it is it can tr- it's controlling which women have access to leadership positions and the boundaries of their leadership so what we'll see is that there'll be cases where you have basically the token woman leader on the organizational team and the men are like okay good i'm done or maybe they have maybe they have two even there's this new term called twokenism and uh, which is a term for um that has been applied to like, uh, for example, organizational boards. They're like, we've got two women out of like 10 or 15 or whatever. So we got two, so we're done. We don't need to do anymore, right? These women are still, to- like they're still tokenized. Um, but this male gatekeeping, again, it's where the, sometimes what we see happening is the men pick which women they want to be serving on, on the board or on these, in these leadership positions. And they'll pick the ones that they feel like will be least likely to rock the boat. It was really interesting in the study um, because in the original study that we did, because in the mission organizations, what we saw in, in those organizations, because often it was like a husband and wife team working together, they required, I guess, authority of the husband. And so the quote here, the example is, when the president wanted me to take the regional director role, he first went to my husband and talked it over with him to find out what he thought. Was this in a mission organization? This was in a mission organization, yeah. Yeah, and, and the mission organizations, too, were interesting because they were... Um, they often had this two-person career structure, which was that we pay the man, we get two for one. You pay the husband and you get the wife's labor for free. And- um, Sounds like a good deal. Yeah, it does sound like a good deal, right? <laughs> um, and so, so, so we really saw the male gatekeeping very strong. Now what, very, much more even blatant, I would say, you know, in the mission organizations. I, I don't know, that, I don't want to sound too discriminatory, but in religious organizations, I'm not entirely surprised by that. No, right, and I mean, some of these findings aren't necessarily surprising, but the fact that we found them and you know documented them and in the research is what's is what's important. Because I tell you, when I go and I talk about this research, and particularly people that don't work out don't work in mission organizations, they don't work in the religious organizations, and I tell them about this example of where the direct the president went to the woman's husband, they're just like flabbergasted because it's kind of amazing. like that that wouldn't necessarily happen. That's no. not going to happen in a it would be considered unprofessional. Yeah, exactly. In any other setting. Right, right, right. So the tide's turning to some extent, though, with women in higher education. Uh, I'm just looking kind of at a positive point mm-hmm. here. You know, I know, and personally in my life, I know several women who are breadwinners. Mm-hmm. 
um, and the marriages are going great. Right, right. So there is a there is a trend here of women showing up in the workforce. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that and, and change happening right now? Well, I would agree with you that society is changing, and um, it's just it's step by step, bit by bit. Right. You know, we're not at we're not at full equality. If we were at full right. equality, then we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. But also, we would see things like like for example, across the board. If you look at all institutions in the United States. And the the most recent percentages that I have of women serving in that top position are like 18%. Mm-hmm. So like less than 20%, you know, CEOs or women presidents or, you know, if you average out all the institutions, 20%. Mm-hmm. Like we still have that huge gap of 30%. And so, mm-hmm. again, what we see is that the women, yes, they're in the workforce and yes, they're working their way up. But I tell you, a lot of times they're getting stuck. Right. And they can only go to a certain point or they decide they don't want to go further. Right. Um, one of the things that we found um, was something we called a psychological class ceiling, which we also label as um, self-limited aspirations. And mm-hmm. what that is, is it's, it can either be manifest in two ways. One, it's an unwillingness to appear assertive or undervaluing their abilities. But it also happens when women just decide, I just don't want to deal with this. Like, I don't want to move up. I don't want to keep moving up because I see the male leaders and, like, and I see the women leaders that are there. These women leaders have way more scrutiny Way, way more, they're working twice as hard to do the same job, right? It's just all kinds of um, grief, for lack of a better word, that the women leaders have that the men don't. And so they just decide, I just don't want to do it. I'm just going to stay sure. where I'm at in my middle role and right. not have it to be a constant battle when I'm at work. So when you do your presentation, what feedback do you get from young women? Um, the feedback I get, first of all, from women generally, is like you, it's like you said earlier, everybody has a Me Too story. Mm-hmm. It really, really resonates. Most frequently, I'm doing with people who are sort of at the middle, you know, middle middle to higher level. Um, but when I've done it with younger women, I think that they, let me put it this way, I've done this before with college students who hadn't been necessarily in the workforce before. Sure. And um, I don't think that they are necessarily, because they haven't been there, are aware of the extent to which this happens. But I tell you, even they have Me Too stories. They're like, yeah, I was serving in the student leadership position, or I was, you know, doing this or that, and I ran into the same, the same type of right. thing. So, like, it really is across the board. It's just the more, again, the more that you move up, the more that you start running into hitting sure. them, the barriers, and they become sure. uh, stronger. Okay. But, but it's like you said, everybody has this, you know, most women that I've talked to have, like, a Me Too story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Informally, we were talking earlier, yeah. and every woman I spoke to I had mm-hmm. a story about gender discrimination. Right. The, and most of the people didn't do anything about it. That's right, right. They kind of just made a calculation. It's not worth it. Mm-hmm. I, I'm moving on. Right. Which, right. unfortunately perpetuates the right, cycle right right uh any final thoughts for us as we wrap up um no i would just say that you know there are things that organizations can do i mean the thing is that we don't want to put this problem just on the women to fix themselves it's very victim blaming but i'll tell you that the thing that the organizations can do that's the most um critical is it's kind of two-faceted one is changing policy but also changing culture um you know i mentioned paid family leave for example it's not enough just to put in a paid family leave policy. The, the culture, the organization, the organizational leaders have to actively encourage everyone to take it and let the men know and the women know that they're not going to be discriminated against or disadvantaged because they took that six weeks off or eight weeks, whatever the leave is. So the imperative, I really just want to say the imperative shouldn't be on the women to fix themselves. Um, the imperative should be on the organizational leaders to fit, fix their um, organizational culture. I think the imperative is also largely on men to mm-hmm. acknowledge these behaviors and in the moment do what you can to correct and that's right. Uh, that's right. make it right. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, we're all involved in, in, in getting where we want to be. That's right, right. That's huge. Yep. 
All right, well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an enlightening conversation. Uh, Jeremy, if you could give us the details one more time. Yeah, I'll just uh, remind everyone that uh, they can see Dr. Deal at the Coil Free Library. She'll be speaking in the conservatory there on March 18th. That's a Monday at 6 p.m. And that first session uh, will be an introduction to uh, barriers women face in leadership roles. And the second session will be March 25th at 6 p.m., same place, and uh, exploring strategies to address the barriers in the workplace. So we'll look forward to that, and uh, you can find what's that? You also have a personal website, don't you? Yes, oh, yeah. I do. Um, my website is uh, amy-deal, that's D as in David, I-E-H-L.com. Um, and I'm on Twitter. It's at Amy Deal, A-M-Y-D-I-E-H-L. Great. All right. You can find The Progress Pod on Twitter at The Progress Pod. And send us an email if you'd like to progresspod at gmail.com. And find us online at progresspod.org. Thanks.